Hi, I'm Howard Tierski. Welcome to the Winning Digital Customers Podcast, where we focus on the stories of large-scale digital transformations told by the people who lead them. Let me introduce Paul, who's joined us today. He has many years of experience as a senior executive with Hewlett Packard. Um, subsequent to that, he has now been a man about town, digital expert, globe trotting, uh, and working with many companies on all their digital stuff. So, um, Paul, why don't you just give us a little background on, on who you are and uh, what you want us to know? Yeah, uh, good day, Howard. And um, as you point out, the minute you and I start talking, it just we just tend to go on, right? We've um, kindred spirits, as it were. Um, my background is I'm a, I'm a reformed nerd. Dirty little secret. I still am a nerd. I just uh, I just hide it. I started out in the high tech industry about twenty five years ago uh, in a startup. Managed to I literally did everything as you do in a startup, from helping ship products through to you know debugging and testing through to taking phone calls and and uh, whether it's support calls or sales calls, you do it all right in a startup, which is great. Then moved from that really nimble startup through to one of the very very strange company Unisys, which you might know is a tech company that's formed out of like three ancient tech companies. That was a real change of scenery for me. It went from really fast-paced and agile to really, really slow and bureaucratic. Uh, and then I was blessed to join the uh, the HP organization, the original Silicon Valley startup, and got uh, got back into being able to do some amazing things. Did that for 20 years um, across Australia, Asia Pacific, and eventually moving to Silicon Valley, where I was the global vice president of strategic marketing for their software business. And we took that business from about $150 million a year when we started through to about $4.5 billion when we eventually spun it out a couple of years ago. And that's uh, when I left and decided to hang out my shingle, as it were, and start working with organizations. And it's been a blast. It's great to be able to move between different organizations. I'm sure you find the same thing and just absolutely get it get a sense of, of what people are doing so that was my long-winded short introduction yeah well that's awesome and it makes me want to ask you you mentioned the challenge of going from a startup to unisys and what mm. sounds like kind of a bureaucratic environment i know that can be very challenging we're trying to drive innovation and then you went to hp which of course is another very large organization with an amazing heritage of innovation Although, frankly, there's a lot of companies that have an amazing heritage of innovation. <laughs> but if you looked at them today, you might not be so impressed. I mean, Kodak had an amazing heritage of innovation, right? Yeah. In its day. Yeah. So I'm curious, uh, you know, did you find it was different? Because you obviously drove tremendous growth and success. So I read between the lines from that, that things must have been somewhat different at HP. Yeah, yeah, look, it was. I mean, and so one of the things about that company that, um, and look, it's been, it's going, it has been through um, a tremendous amount of change in itself in the last five to 10 years, which I, it's hard to characterize its entire, what, 60 years existence with a single sweeping statement. But organizationally, it was really built as a series of small companies working inside a larger corporate structure. And in that regard, each of the business units was given its own P&L, it was given its own right to innovate, um, in many cases, compete with other parts of the, uh, the business itself, which which led to some interesting dynamics, but that Silicon Valley innovated DNA was deep inside the organization. And it's where I was fortunate enough to be able to spend a lot of time looking at everything from, you know, new product introduction, category creation. And frankly, and I think one of the things I'd love to talk about today is the challenges in translating a new idea into market success, because, you know, we hear about all the market successes, but the failures usually outnumber them 10 to one, and they're just as instructive. And in some cases, more powerful than the successes. If for no other reason, they teach you how and where value can be created and destroyed. And sorry, the last point I wanted to make is I was blessed to do take on board a global role because it really 
incredibly easy to become myopic about what you think the market is based on your cultural experience and being able to go and travel 20, 30 countries in a year and meet with clients who interacted with their own customers and your products in really radically different ways helped reframe a lot of um, my assumptions about what it meant to be a, a global citizen. Yeah, well, to your point earlier about how we, we seem to be kindred spirits, I mean, both things you just said, kind of, I see a common thread, which is the opportunity now where you work with lots of companies to see that kind of diversity. And then mm. when you were at HP, your opportunity within one company, but it sounds like it was really many companies in many ways within yeah. HP, like yeah. you say, to, to travel and see different markets and everything. And it's one of the reasons I wanted to ask you about HP. I, I'm a collector of what works because yeah. like you say, 90% of products fail. So many enterprises that try to drive transformation fail. So what I'm always going is, okay, but it's working somewhere. And even if it's only 10%, where's it working and what are they doing? What, what's the yeah. secret to success? You know? And so um, I'm, I always like to collect those things and try to study what those are. So I heard at least with respect to HP, one certainly was that they had a, a more nimble sort of separated structure. So they weren't necessarily yeah. making decisions as a monolith. Was there anything else that you, you took from HP that you'd say, yeah, when you're consulting with other large companies that are having challenges of transformation, and we know there are so many, where you'd say, well, here's something else HP's doing. Maybe you should consider this. Yeah, look, I think for me, uh, watching what didn't work and contrasting that, I should say, with what did work, there were a couple of things that became really apparent. One that won't be any surprise to you is, is the persistence of vision of great leadership, not just setting a, a set of you know, transformational or aspirational goals. But the bloody-minded, if I could put it that way, persistence to wake up every morning, not just for the next quarter or for the next year, but for the next two, three, four years, and continue to inspect and reflect on the same set of priorities and, and to really build that into the DNA and change the people through consistency, right? Consistency, persistence, you know, it's pretty straightforward. Um, that was definitely one of the big things. I think a lot of the failures we had, you could put down to people having the right idea. I once made this observation, I never met a strategy that wasn't a great one. The most, almost every strategy was a qualified, but I think every strategy I ever saw was actually pretty decent. It was the inability to persist with that that usually was the difference between success and failure. Some people just went, you know, the market's not moving as quickly as I want to, and they blame their idea or the market rather than the fact that perhaps they just hadn't been at it long enough. Just because the people in your you know, immediate vicinity know about your idea doesn't mean the world's heard about it yet, right? There's 7 billion of us, there's 10 of you. It takes yeah. a lot of persistence, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And the other, frankly, is great people. I mean, it sounds silly, but you know, surrounding yourself with really solid people is um, one of the things that I think is a standout. I wrote an article a few years back on an interview that I'd heard Tony Robbins do actually with, mm -hmm. and I forget the names, but it was the, one of the people who'd founded Skype and one of the people who'd founded Airbnb. And they had a very similar story. They both spent about three years in complete wasteland, like zero mm -hmm. revenue, no reason to think this was going to work other than the kind of sheer persistence that you're talking about. And mm -hmm. we do tend to have this experience of, well, we didn't hear about them then you know, so because they were unsuccessful and all of a sudden something starts to take off and hits that hockey stick curve. And you're like, God, I only heard about this thing a month ago and now everyone's talking about it. It's an overnight success. No, you just heard about it when it started to become an overnight success. And even some companies like the mythology of being an overnight success, because that makes you sound like you're the hottest thing instead of, yeah, everyone ignored us for four years and now you're paying attention. Like that's not good marketing, you know? So that, that story gets brushed under the rug, but it's harmful then 
when you're that person going, man, you know, Skype was an overnight success. Airbnb, one of my favorite things they talked about was they were having so little success. They get like $1,500 of revenue a month. They rent like two places a month, practically nothing. And at one point they, they needed money. And this was during the election between Obama and McCain to make money because they also had design skills. They decided to make funny cereal boxes of Obama O's, right? And some kind of equivalent for McCain. And then what they did was (laughs) for the Obama O's, they designed this funny box with Obama, like a cartoon of Obama on it, all that, right? It wasn't anti-Obama or pro-Obama. It was just like Obama O's, just like you'd have Tony the Tiger. And then they had these boxes made like at Kinko's or whatnot. And then mm-hmm. they went to the grocery store and they just bought Cheerios. You have Cheerios in Australia? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, so we don't, bought... but I get, we've got and, something. And you know how uh, a cereal will have like that inner lining with the actual cereal? So they just took yeah. out the, that part, threw away the <laughs> Cheerios box, put it in their Obama O's box, and they sold them for like $15, right? Because it was a novelty, right? And this yeah. was how they funded <laughs> continuing the persistence because they had like no money to eat. They were eating like ramen noodles. So this was their little side gig while they were trying to get Airbnb going. Oh, you know what? Another one. I'm sorry. There were three. No, Airbnb, please. I love them. Right? And, and Venmo. That was the other one. Really? And they all had the same story. It was a story of literally three years. And the funny thing is, it was three years for all of them. Exactly three years. You know, and I'm not surprised though, because and again, this is one of the things that I think is it's the I actually, you know, we joked about the overnight success thing, but it, it's actually one of the greatest frustrations as a as a sales and marketing executive as well, especially when you know running marketing when you're dealing with an executive who starts to buy into this idea that these companies appear and execute out of nowhere and suddenly you know build this great momentum, and it starts to impact expectations of how quickly transformative efforts or innovations are likely to take hold in the marketplace. And that's critical for a couple of reasons. Number one is it usually leads to an absurd set of sales expectations and targets. Just because you've launched a product doesn't necessarily mean the customers love it. Um, so, you know, you lose a, an important signal because your salespeople might be giving you great information, but you're trying to get them to sell your bright idea that may not have been properly tested, number one. But number two, when they don't get that instant hit of results, they get strategy attention deficit disorder, right? It's like, oh, we need another strategy then, right? And so, you you know, you execute that for three, six, nine, 12 months. It's usually less than a financial year because that tends to be when people, you know, look at the scorecards a little bit more acutely. And then they burn that and they're like, well, that idea was a bad idea. And I would argue, and you, you probably may have a different point of view on this, but your customers might have only just started to hear about this idea after nine months and you've just ripped it off the shelves just as they were getting ready to start to change their behaviors. Right, right, right. Uh, yeah, a, a persistence of vision, I think, is one of the critical elements of this. I mean, it's um, I, really rare to get an overnight success. I absolutely think that's true. And there's a funny um, dialectic about that, though, because when you give advice for like people in startups, what are the two yep. most common things you hear? One, persist in your vision. Don't take rejection seriously. Don't let them tell you no. And what's the other? Pivot. Be flexible, be agile, right? <laughs> Respond to the market, right? Well, then it's like, well, well wait a minute. <laughs> so yeah, if exactly I put a product right. in the market and it's not immediately working, do I persist or do I pivot? Those are opposite things to do, right? And well, that's the art of it, right? That's maybe why if there was only one direction and you could say, follow this one thing and you will definitely be successful, then probably more people will be successful. But I think this is one of the challenges is to know when to persist or when to pivot or how much to pivot You can be running endlessly towards something that nobody wants, selling ice to Eskimos, or you could be needing to persist to get that market awareness. And I mean, do you have any tips for somebody who's going, okay, well, how do I know the difference? One of the things that you talk about is a really important point. It's one of the questions that I always used to ask, which is, 
okay, I know we've got our idea of what we think the market wants, but that's based on on our perception and often on asking the customer what they want. And I think one of the great insights for success with this is actually goes to the root of the innovation process in and of itself, which is rather than come up with what you think the customer's problem is, why don't you go and just watch how they behave a day in their life? Because you may have spent a ton of time thinking about a problem and solving a problem that they may actually have, but more likely than not, they don't perceive to be a problem. They don't ascribe commercial value to it. And um, no matter how polished it is, it's never going to get used. And I think one of the great misnomers, I think, is the overnight success, right? And the other is the brilliantly insightful engineer or executive who somehow manages to intuit the needs of all of their customers without ever watching them work. Right. And I think that's one of the great failings of this. So I think start with, I hate to say good data because people immediately think I mean hard data in the sense of, you know, you've got to have your analytics in place. Data can be observational. Go and just watch people do their jobs. And if you can see a more effective and efficient way of solving that, whether it's with technology or however you might do that, you've potentially created value for those people. And, yeah. and that's critical. I think start with watching your customers. Well, I think that's a great answer to my question because um, what I hear you saying really is if you're trying to figure out whether your lack of success is a situation where you should persist or a situation where you should pivot, one thing to do is do customer research and figure out does somebody love this product? Mm. Because, you know, if I've got 10 mothers of children with learning disabilities or whatever my target market is, who absolutely love this product, and I know there are millions of them out there, mm -hmm. and my problem is how do I get them? That's one thing. But if it's a product for mothers with children with learning disabilities, and, you know, I've had 30, 40, 50 of them look at it, consider it, play with it, but nobody's really interested in it. I've got nobody. Sometimes the difference between one or two great customers and zero is a huge difference. Because if you can't find anybody that likes it, it's probably time to pivot. If you found some people, but you just can't grow it enough, now you have a marketing and awareness problem, assuming that there exist more people like the people that, that love it. One of my first diagnostics I have with organizations that are struggling with obtaining success is exactly that. They'll, be, they'll talk to me and say, like, I need more customers. I need more this. I need more that. And they're like, okay. And they'll, they'll, they'll want to get onto ideating solutions. And I'm like, okay, let's pause. There's only one person whose opinion matters in this, and that's the three or four or five people who've actually bought what it is you do. And one of my first questions, I said, I, I need to talk to those people. What do you want to ask right. them? I want to ask them, who dies if I take this away from you now that you've got it? Who suffers if I take this away from you? Why don't you want me to take this away from you? Because if they can give me good reasons as to why they don't want to lose it, I've got the beginning of my marketing campaign of my value proposition. Because there is a, another thing I've discovered is a lot of the time they might have built a great product, but they don't actually understand the value that it's being put to versus the value that they thought they were building. So they've got a messaging problem. And again, ask your existing customers, as you point out, that, that's a really good test for do I pivot or do I persist? Is If you've got people who are laying down on the train tracks going, no way, are you taking this thing away from me? Or going back to the old way or whatever it might be, right. you know you've got something. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. I agree. This is one that um, that I think will resonate, hopefully, with most of you. If I said I'm going to take away pin and chip cards, that tap to, wait, tap to pay type capability, I mean, I was in the United States 10 years ago. They were still using those clicky, clacky credit card machine things. I, I thought I'd gone back to like the Flintstones era. It was bizarre. If you said to me, take away the tap, to, I'd be like, what are you? No way. But it had been resisted for a tremendous period of time. ATMs, another classic thing, right? When they first arrived. No one wanted to use them. Now it's like, oh, we're taking away the ATMs. There'd be a riot. So I think that right. was an example of where persistence was really important. If you'd given up because of a lack of adoption, 
you would have completely missed the market. You know, that's a great point. And actually, it makes me think of something that I've been thinking about lately about COVID. I was not a user of tap to pay. And, and to me, the reason was because most of the credit card terminals around here at stores, they have the thing where you can stick the card in. And I saw the thing tap to pay, but I had a habit, right? My habit was I stick the card in and I had very little pain associated with that habit. So sure. it was just not a priority. And I, I gave it zero thought. If someone had ever said to me, why aren't you using tap to pay? I would have been like, well, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not against it, but like, I'm not thinking about it. I'm, I'm multitasking and I'm, I'm checking out and I just stick my credit card in. And what's the big deal? Then COVID. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden I'm like, I don't know if I want to stick my credit card into this thing that other people's credit cards have been in, you know, where they may have their germs on and all that, you know? So all of a sudden I become hyper aware of what am I touching and what is my yeah. credit card touching? And all of a sudden I'm yeah. like, hey, I think I can just wave it near the terminal. And isn't there a thing up there like that? And this is, I'm telling you, this is four months ago, six months ago, right? Way late. But I just had no reason to to adopt it. And I think that that is a pattern we see with COVID all around. And and I'm actually working on another thing I'm going to write about uh, Dr. Seuss. See, I always like to make these, you know, strange. And we've gone from tap to pay to COVID to Dr. Seuss. So Mm -hmm. I assume uh, in Australia that still people read Dr. Seuss, Green Eggs and Ham. Is that right? Uh, I, I do not like them, Sam. I am. Exactly. Exactly. So that's a story about a guy who doesn't want it and doesn't want it, doesn't want it. And by the way, anytime I hire a business development person, I always buy them a copy of that book. <laughs> because to me, it is the ultimate sales book. The guy's like, I don't want it. I don't want it. I don't want it. I don't want it. And then the finally, the end. And I tear up. I tear up when he says, say... I do like these green eggs and ham. And then he says, after all that, thank you. Thank right. you, Sam, I am. Right? That's so, so um, but <laughs> see, I see you're tearing up too, right? <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. It's, it's, reminds, yeah. it's, it's Actually, you know, it's, a, it's such a powerful thing. And um, I think overcoming, whether it's customer inertia, because ultimately when you're taking a new product out to market or a new offering service out to market, you're trying to overcome two forms of inertia, the buyer's or consumer's inertia, because they're used to doing what they did the day before. And societal norms and behavioral norms carry with them a tremendous amount of inertia. And it is really, you know, force equals mass times acceleration, right? When you've got a big mass of people, right, a big mass of behaviors, changing that requires a huge counterforce or you apply a small force over a long period of time. That behavior, I think, is also true of your people. They'll want to keep selling the way they sold before. I mean, imagine introducing the ATM into the bank. What's that going to do? It's going to take away my job. There'll be people from the inside fighting the status quo. And you've got to remember, and this is probably more important for a large organization than it is for a small one, when it comes to this whole pivot discussion is how much of my failure is due to the fact that my own people either don't understand what it is we're trying to accomplish or believe that this is going to cause their existing power base or structure, personal or organizational, to be eroded. And therefore, they're going to either passively or actively resist it. Right. And again, we stop, We often look to the market and go, the reason we're not succeeding is the market. But I've seen countless examples of where competing priorities internally meant that there were one group of people who were quite actively trying to sabotage the other. Absolutely. You know? and, and why wouldn't they, right? Doesn't that just make right. complete sense, right? A very quick example that um, most of the listeners I imagine heard about was when um, they went to release the iPhone. The product manager for the iPod's like, okay, we'll do this product, but we've got to take the music player out of the phone. You know, it'll cannibalize the sales of the iPod. And, you know, Steve has a lot of things um, credited to them that may or may not be true, but this one sounds believable, so I'll share it. Either we do it or someone else is going to do it. Right. You know, we do it to ourselves and we own that change rather than let somebody else 
bring the change upon us. And I think right. that organizational dynamic is a, t- a difficult one. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I want to harken back to what you said before about pain, where you said, you know, let's find out what kind of pain do you feel if I take away this new product to really understand how important it is. I think there's an opportunity to do the flip side, which is to understand if the product is one that solves pain, whether it's an internal pain solution, like it increases the revenues or it addresses a, a pain that the call center people have or pain for customers, of course, that is another metric. Take my tap to pay. All of a sudden, a product that really wasn't solving a pain, I had no pain. So I wasn't using tap to pay. But Hmm. now all of a sudden I had pain because of COVID and because of my fear of germs. I wasn't worried about germs before that. I would have thought I was crazy to be worried about sticking my credit card in the thing. Like, what am I, a germaphobe? But now all of a sudden, you know, by the way, that's something that can happen sometimes too, right? If you're trying to launch a product that the market's not taking up, sometimes you can get a little lucky and something will change. Something will shift. Some new need will develop, right? A a natural disaster can occur. Look at Zoom. Yeah, 100%, right. And the longer- Absolutely. No one knew who they were a year ago. Yeah. And the longer you persist, the more likely something lucky is to happen. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, if I just wait long enough, I'll get lucky. Well, you know, that's probably not like a complete strategy in and of itself, but it's one thread in the persistence thing. I think this is where stakeholder management with your investors is really important. Before you kick off that innovation is getting clear about what the framework for the return on investment needs to look like. And again, it's it's really easy to make sweeping generalizations uh, and I do it myself all the time. And then, you know, as a business owner myself, I then check myself thinking, well, hang on, how would I react vice? But genuinely speaking, when you're building your success plan for that innovation, having some absurd ROI period of like six, nine months when you paid it all back, I don't think many VCs expected to not be putting money in after two years. So why the heck inside an existing enterprise do you think you can defy the laws of commerce? If you're that bloody good, then you- Why, you, why aren't you, you Mark Zuckerberg? Should be, yeah, you should, be roll, you should be rolling in billions, right? But right. The, the reality is no, there, there's no such, I don't think there's any fast paths to successful innovation here. I think occasionally people get lucky, but I think even that's probably mythologized. I suspect that they were probably very deliberate and disciplined. Earlier this week, I had another guest and we were talking about the the golf story about that woman who the very <laughs> first time she played golf hits a hole in one on the first mm-hmm. hole, right? So, yeah. you know, anything's possible, <laughs> but that yeah. can't be your strategy, right? We're just going to get no. crazy, crazy lucky. But I think, you, I think you're absolutely right about all this. But the one thing I think is, okay, so you, you go into your board or your CEO with this big new idea and you say, look, here's yeah. the plan. For three years, just like Venmo, just like PayPal, just like Skype, we're going to have no revenue. We're going to suffer. Nobody's going to know who we are. It's going to be the flat part of the hockey stick. But don't worry, because in year four, we're going to have an inflection point, right? So my question to you is, is the only way to get things funded in corporate America to just lie like crazy and then hope (laughs) to get lucky later? (laughs) Um, You know, it's it's a great question and one I think about a heck of a lot. Uh, yeah, there are a bunch of people I know who would say, "No, we've got to show a crazy good return. We've got to, you know, we've got to make everyone feel that this is doable." And then once they're committed to the idea, financially committed, you rely on a, a trait of human psychology called loss aversion, mm-hmm. uh, where people value a loss more highly than they do a gain, and just get them to continue to plow in. But again, I, I think that that's both cynical and, frankly, I, I think if that's what you got to do to get the idea floated, you, you don't have a, a group of backers who've got that persistence of vision to begin with. You're just you might get lucky here that they are foolish enough to continue to believe the narrative, and invariably you'll find a string of executives, you know, being thrown out as they fail to meet these unrealistic well, exactly, expectations. Exactly. Exactly. The aversion of loss uh, principle applies to the investment but not to the person. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So yeah, unfortunately, yeah. they're happy to fire the person 
and say, well, that guy lied to us. But now that we've invested, we can't lose our money. So now we're going to hire someone else who's going to come in and say, oh, that guy was crazy. I can't believe he told you you'd ever turn 18 months or in, in nine months. I'm going to need another nine months. <laughs> and then you're going to have your return. You know? <laughs> and then that guy's going to get fired. But that's the story. Isn't that the story yeah. we see over and over? So yeah, unfortunately, it may be that, that that lack of persistence of vision that you describe characterizes the management of most large legacy enterprises.